Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and a very warm welcome to Lecture 3 in our series on, on Feeding a Better Future. Um, the series is building up very nicely, and I know we can expect an, an extremely challenging additional perspective this evening from Tim Lang. Uh, Professor Lang is the go-to person on food policy for everybody, from the scientific community through to the mass media. And he has this reputation because he has credibility across such a wide range. He's a researcher, he's a very profound thinker about the wider implications of his subject, and above all, as a communicator. I'm not going to steal his thunder by um, reading his CV, which is very familiar to many people here this evening. Su suffice it to say that he has been many things. He's been a farmer, he's been a very distinguished scholar and educator, a consultant to international groups like the WHO and governors, governments, a regular at select committees, um, a journalist, and he pulls all this together in his role as Professor of Food Policy at City University. So please give a very warm welcome this evening to Professor Tim Rand. Thank you, David, very much indeed. That was very nice. Uh, uh, look, one of the things that Sir David didn't say was that um, uh, in uh, various incarnations I've been a Lumpen Polytechnic lecturer. And one of the juries of that uh, was that you always put it up in the first two slides. And then everyone can go to sleep. Uh, and one of my favourite occasions ever giving a lecture um, was to, I think, about a hundred students at the top of an enormous tower block in Manchester where you could see the Cheshire Hills and um, Stockport. And uh, a, a student was looking out of the window and I said, um, uh, what are you doing? And he said, see there, Dr. Lang. When you speak, I see pigs fly past. I'm just watching them now. <laughs> so, uh, before the pigs fly past. Um, but thank you. Thank you for that introduction and thank you for inviting me. I'm genuinely honoured, actually. Um, I've put a tie on, uh, so uh, I must be. Um, but I'm honoured that um, you'd want me to come and, more importantly, that you come. I have a style of talking and you read, okay? The slides are for you so you can get them, you can get them from me. And I do them in chapters. Every now and again you'll get a much less writing on a slide which says pause, new chapter. This is going to be about this. So I'm actually quite structured. Doesn't look like it, but I will sound like it. Basically, many of my sort of peer group are here know this and many of you I don't know will know it, the food system's in real trouble. It doesn't matter what our starting point is, whether we're social scientists, medics, environmentalists, business, politicians, consumer analysts, big change is all expected. Everyone knows we are entering and have already entered into a very, very tricky time. Uh, we know that the 20th century delayed, put back, resolved, dissipated, blew up, delete when necessary, the Malthusian problem. We went from feeding 
a billion people badly to feeding seven billion people badly. Not bad, actually. Not bad. Uh, a billion people just about below, still malnourished and hungry, but five, six billion getting food. That's inconceivable. For Malthus, we're talking late 18th century. Are you ready? People started to look at me. I think, and what I want to talk about, is the first straight line bullet point. What's a good food system? What is a good food system? How can we do that in a world which is grossly divided? And for the last five years since the uh, commodity price spike of 2007-8, uh, the rich Western world has got more nervous about food and started saying, you mean it's not Africa, it's us? Yes. Uh, uh, for Here we are in Dolls College, well not this, but in the name of Dolls College, uh, the spread of Western diseases, now 1.4 billion people overweight and obese, a mere 0.9 billion hungry. This, was, this is a new world. This is not conceivable for the middle of the 20th century architects of where we've got to. I want to talk about that. And the difficulty. We've got John Ingram and others here who have been patiently looking at the environmental footprint. This is just immense complexity. Climate change has got, you know, Crispin Tikal, the man who reputedly, and he always says he did, and I believe him, convert the blessed Mrs. T to understanding climate change. She did have a degree from this university, so we'd like to think she understood it. Uh, nothing very much changed, but there was a bit of engagement. But the environmental footprint of food is a lot more than climate change, and some of us, I'm one, thinks actually climate change ain't the problem. It's biodiversity and ecosystems, much more than that, and probably it's water that will bring it to its knees, not climate change. But they're all linked. So this is a messy, difficult world. Even Tesco knows this. Not my favourite company. And I speak as someone before horse burgers, by the way. <laughs> In case you're still with me. The evidence of systemic stress, let's be very polite, has grown. But there is a strange situation for someone like me who's a policy watcher. And I look at the rich world, not at the developing world. Not that I'm uninterested in that. I was influenced by Susan George and others 40 years ago when setting out on this world. Said, don't look down, look up. And I've tried to do that ever since. I'm more interested in what Unilever and Coca-Cola are doing than what Malawi is doing. Because Malawi's not the problem. It has problems, but it's not the problem. You still reading I don't think the policy debate of north-south global uh, developed or less developed worlds is helping. I think the, what is meant by sustainability is being narrowed to the environment, whereas think Brundtland and sustainability is a social dimension. And in particular, I'm wanting tonight to stress how the social and the environmental and the economic, if you take Brundtland's three, actually have to all be addressed. And I'm going to pose 
what, two years ago, as my literally dying week as a government commissioner for sustainable development, I proposed uh, a model of what I think we need to turn sustainability into food policy thinking. Six headings, not three headings. I'll come to that. But the bottom two little slash bullet points is uh, what I've not talked about very much, but I'm going to use you as guinea pigs. And I was hugely influenced uh, reading beverage, not the beverage of welfare state, but the more important beverage, who was an agricultural economist and wrote the official history of World War I, food policy, a, an utterly, utterly brilliant book called Food Control. And I've spent my life, 1928, Clarendon Press, down the road, if you want the reference. Uh, I've spent my life disagreeing with food control. And I coined this phrase, food democracy, 20 years ago. And I think that is messily what needs to be our totem pole. Okay, you can now go to sleep and watch pigs. Okay, where are we now? I'm going to do this first. I want to take you back to something not enough people talk about, this. Hot Springs Conference, where after a similar 50 years of debate, like we've been having for 30 years, essentially in the Second World War, the Allies put together a planning meeting, which wasn't a quick two-week, two-day job, three weeks, to say, what does it need to look like when and if there is something we can call peace? The League of Nations hadn't worked. We know what the problems are. Are you reading it? I give this to people and say, is there anything wrong with that? Everyone agrees. It's absolutely right. So how have we got to a situation when the policy template that the world agreed and was rolled out and generated the FAO, the Food and Agriculture Organization, generated things like uh, uh, WHO, uh, linked in to food all stems from this it got its legitimacy from this this is what the world signed on look by 1979 basically the planet had signed on to this it's not worked here we are in 2013 and the catalogue of what is wrong and under stress in food can send us suicidal to jumping off and out of the tower block in Manchester, not just watching pigs fly past. We've got a really tricky problem of overproduction. You will get people who say, we need to produce 70% more food. Really? We're actually wasting 30%. And uh, a vast amount is actually already produced. We have 30% surplus calories for the world. That's measuring it very crudely. We do need to produce more food if we want to eat like America, which uses four to five planets worth of ecological space, or two to three as us. These are crude. I'm looking at John who's looking quizzical at me here. We've got to rethink efficiency. If we mean ecological efficiency, that's a very different notion of what should drive policy than just productivity as in price 
we know that list there that we, certainly in my world, we call the new fundamentals. It's not just the eco issues, it's the social issues, the gross social inequalities, the overconsumption and the underconsumption side by side. And this tricky phrase, nutrition transition, that my friend Barry Popkin has spent his life on, basically, we've seen it happen, not just with us century ago, but seeing it happen now rapidly in China, in India, in Brazil. Popkin and his colleagues at uh, University of North Carolina have now studied for the world, for the UN system, now half the planet. And half the planet is going through rapidly a nutrition transition and developing the diseases of affluence that they didn't previously have. And they haven't got an NHS. Even a squeezed NHS they haven't got. And this is a huge problem in the developing world that isn't their problem, it's our problem. So, you know, we teach our students, I'm sure you do too, those of you who are teachers, lecturers, that, you know, good medicine, good policy is about narrowing the gap between evidence and policy. Actually, the gap has widened. Not narrowed, it's widened. What can we do? I mean, don't even look at this, you know. How many reports do we need to say we're in trouble? There are lots and lots and lots. But these tend to be ones which focus more on the environmental problems, the economic problems. Not many of them actually talk very much about the social inequalities. This guy here... Olivia de Schutter, who's a lawyer, the UN Special Rapporteur, is, I think, the man to read and the man to watch. He is just fantastic. Uh, he is chipping away all the time. What we have is a sort of an avalanche of reports like these. I, I had a little bit involvement in that. That's the World Economic Forum. That's all the big business. That's a McKinsey report, by the way. I mean, this is the forces of twilight here. <laughs> uh, but essentially, they are very smart. I mean, as ever, McKinsey, really clever. If you haven't read that one, read it. But these are just vast. I mean, how many reports do we need to say that we're in trouble? But there isn't hot springs. But the point is, we haven't got a hot springs that's addressing this. And they're all showing a highly complicated analysis. And some of them, some of them, here are number one, are highlighting the social dimension that has to, has to, infiltrate everything we do. Now, let's get now a bit nastier towards hot springs. What's gone wrong? The model that Hot Springs encapsulated was created in the 20s and 30s based upon things from earlier, drawing upon 19th century science very successfully, some even done a little bit in Oxford, uh, which Mike Heisman and I called the productionist paradigm in our book, The Food Wars. I mean, crudely, this is it. Science plus capital, as long as you distribute whatever you produce right, you can increase the output, get less waste, and deliver cheaper food. And that will deliver health. Because the big social barrier, this was a social analysis. Read Boyd Orr, read Macintosh, read all of those 20s and 30s reports in the BMJ. 
This was a social analysis and said, if we produce more food, it will resolve society's problems. Instead of which, it's become a productionist analysis. It lost its social. This is the default. I put it in red. It's the only thing I've put in red. This is the default position. So when you get heated exchanges about can biotechnology get this back onto the agenda, it's sort of trying to go back to the default position of the productionist paradigm, not including this more complicated ecosystems analysis of the reality today, let alone the complexity of where China now has a bigger bank balance than the West put together. That world doesn't fit this policy paradigm. Let's take it a bit deeper. What's wrong with this? Production did work. Don't just forget it. You read some people who sort of almost imply it's all a disaster, we're all doomed. I said it in my opening remarks. We are feeding huge amounts more people because of the productionist paradigm. It has been fantastically successful, but it's now sort of pushed into a corner because the room has got bigger, if you're following my metaphor. The costs and externalities have risen, and I don't think it can address the challenges ahead. What they didn't know was this. They couldn't imagine a world of overconsumption. I've read everything that Boydor's ever written. They didn't think that it was conceivable. Boydor, whose moral imperative uh, rose from teaching malnourished kids in Glasgow, when he went back, he founded the uh, Research Institute and many others. A beautiful book by James Vernon, if you've read that, called Hunger. Very, very brilliant British social historian based at Berkeley now. Uh, his book, which basically analyzes and tells you the story. It's a beautiful story he tells of this. They couldn't imagine overconsumption. They did not imagine the environmental damage because the environment was to be mined. I've read Stapleton. Read Sir George Stapleton, the greatest soil scientist Britain probably has ever produced. I'm sure they're better now. Uh, but his view was that the environment was to be mined. He believed also that the environment was to be green lungs for uh, the cities. Uh, but his view was, we can take bits out of the earth and we can alter water systems and we can drain swampy Welsh uplands near Aberystwyth where he worked and did his great work. Or we can take water to other bits. The earth is to be mined. The delicacy of ecosystems wasn't at the heart of it. And certainly, certainly, they didn't understand the, the arrival of non-communicable diseases. These vastly expensive externalised costs, and I put it there again, we've got higher life expectancy but more morbidity, and that's the problem. And if you haven't read it, have a look at The Lancet's The New Global Burden of Disease study, which came out just in December. I mean, the picture has got complicated, but essentially diet is implicated. Uh, this avalanche of food, a bit like the avalanche of money that is locked up in banks, the avalanche of food is actually unfortunately not locked up in banks. It's down our throats and in our arteries and elsewhere. And it's spreading in India, China, everywhere. I sometimes put this one up and say, where is that? Well, give me the answer. It's in Thailand. 
it could be anywhere. It's the Tesco. This is Tesco. Not my favourite company. Uh, you know, this is Tesco flogging cutlers. This is this is surplus calorie world. This is spreading diabetes type two world. You know, I'm crude. I'm afraid. I think they have to. We have to hold a mirror up and say it. Call it as it is. Go and look at the disease profiles of Thailand and see what's happening. It's not good. I'm sure some of you will know this. John certainly knows this. You know, this is a much-cited article by Rockstrom and colleagues. You know, there are pretty good, it's a metaphor, but pretty good reasons for arguing the environmental limits are being approached in some cases and not in others. This is just ecosystems perspective, but actually food is implicated in a large number of these. Water, land, biodiversity, ocean acidification, climate change, nitrogen cycle, phosphorus cycle, you know, these were all food actually. This wasn't done for food. This is very, no wonder some of the reports are very sober that, that I listed. And this, Gustavsson and colleagues for the FAO, the, the waste, if you go read those 1930s, the founders of the thinking of productionism, they said science will resolve it. Good storage, Good use of agrochemicals will get rid of the waste. They had 30% waste problems. What have we got in 2011? This is the FEO's big review. 30% waste. But what is different? And we used this. My colleagues and I helped on a big contribution to the UNEP report that came out last year, United Nations Environment Report, and we made great play of this. The reality is the waste the waste is massive in the rich areas, but is growing in the other areas as well. And the, the, the form that waste takes varies. When you get low, very low income societies, when the food gets to the consumer, they don't waste much. We waste a huge amount, and there's a large amount wasted before it gets to us. They waste a huge amount before it gets to the consumer lost due to lack of infrastructure, lack of storage, all the things that were the justification for the productionist paradigm. We can resolve this technically. And they were right. They could. But it's generated the same amount of waste by different means. I've been in meetings with, when I was a government commissioner, with waste people. And there's some sort of an open thinking, maybe you have as well, open thinking maybe we're just wasteful. I don't think, I don't accept that argument. I think this is social. This is cultural. This is expectations. This is not treating food seriously because it's got so cheap. As opposed to being treated very seriously because it's so expensive. In a society which spends 50-60% of its disposable income on food, they don't waste it when they get it. The problem is it's wasted before they get it. These are different policy problems. The productionist paradigm is too crude. It's too simplistic, is my argument. Not wrong, but too simplistic. And doesn't apply to us, the rich West. And this is what's got, you know, the business world, the McKinsey's, the Tesco, suddenly Tesco giving the biggest ever donation to social science in Britain, 25 million 
pounds to Manchester University to create the Sustainable Consumption Institute. Oxford bid for it but didn't get it. By the way, you didn't know that. You do now. Very good to be reminded you're not always the best. Uh, uh, this is what's caused the panic. That, uh, you know, uh, if I should have put it, put up a slide, but I haven't imagined, you know, 1860 over here and there, 2010 over there, you know, the price of foods has come down to blip, World War One, blip, World War Two carries on going down, blip, two th the 1970s, the oil crisis goes down, and then blip, and the economists all say, well, it'll carry on going down. And the new fundamentalists, which I've won, theoreticians said, no, it won't. And we're right. It's not. And the OECD and the FAO are now saying the future is volatility and higher prices. They've never said that. It's very, very, very significant indeed. And here, literally, just taken from the OECD Agricultural Outlook, the 2012 to 21, just look at those graphs going up. These are prices. This is expectation. So this is a different world. Don't feel sorry for Tesco or Unilever or the food manufacturers, but they are being squeezed. And they're doing remarkable things. They're actually doing some very interesting things. They're reducing prices, sorry, reducing um, product formulation, altering product formulation, <laughs> doing all sorts of things. But this is a tricky world that they've not been used to. Essentially, I've said this. Uh, the picture I'm painting is that the productionist paradigm was a very good idea. And it was a broad consensus across the sciences, the social and the natural scientists and the politicians and the political movements. And I don't think we've got the equivalent now. And that's what we've got to go for. I think we need a hot springs too, which builds the social aspects into it. And we ain't got that. We've got hundreds of reports adding to what I call policy cacophony. It's not cacophony harmony. And that's what we've got to go for. And the difficulty is the food system, of course, is not farming. The productionists thought that farming is what mattered. I've just spent two and a half days in The Hague with all the global donors of the, the planet, i.e. that's us, the rich, Western world, worrying about Africa. Uh, they're right to worry about Africa. But Africa isn't just starving. Sub-Saharan Africa has 5% obesity, sub-Saharan Africa. This is a trickier world. This is supermarketization world going on there. The value has gone off the land, not say stayed with agriculture, as, as alongside the waste, the waste and the, the mess. Uh, this is a dense slide, and I probably shouldn't have done it. Uh, I'm, I'm intrigued, and my friend Liz Downer's coming now, and I, in fact, Liz, I'll put this for you. Where are you? This is for you, actually, uh, so you can look at it later. I think the social analysis has come into food and gone away, come in and gone away, come in and gone away. And there are different phases and times at which the argument has come in and gone away. And the problem is it's gone away in a very big way now. Inequalities is Africa. It's not here. It's 
not in the Western world, and yet I watch the prices here. I don't know if you read anything I do. Uh, you know, the creeping of food inflation, coupling with the rise of employment, rise of employment, is actually squeezing food consumption in a massive way. Read the grocer, that well-known academic journal. Read the grocer's price index, and you see it all the time. And it's remarkable. Absolutely remarkable. Okay, how are we going? I need to go faster. Where should we go? I think the problem is that the social dimension is rightly, but also wrongly, associated with the developing world, the less developed countries, LDCs. I think developed country food policy is still reducing the social to the consumer market dynamic. It says you and I as a consumer can get what values we want when we go to a supermarket. It's our consumer choice. I think that's not good enough. We see lots of debates, I won't spell this out, for those who want to look at the slides later, I think there are some very interesting splits at the moment between we must focus on Africa now versus we must address the long term. And you see zillions going in to gain Bill Gates is pouring his money into this, scaling up nutrition, I think, I don't know what people here think, I think it's quite interesting. It's not got the big funds, but it's certainly got the big uh, sort of moral righteousness and is getting much more funds. And it's sort of tending towards quick fixes. The longer arguments, there's a very interesting position coming out among all the NGOs. Here we are in Oxford, this is Oxfam land. The new Oxfam IF campaign, if you look at it, saying there's enough food, it's badly distributed, but we could do better if. It's a very interesting campaign. I declare an interest, I sort of talked with them. Uh, I think these are very different positions emerging. This isn't hot springs to opportunity, this is each has their own hot springs. We've got some hot issues which are dominating whenever politicians meet. Our Prime Minister went to Monrovia last weekend and you notice that he was wanting to talk about new millennium development goals and that Britain is taking a lead on that and that's very interesting. But his argument was hooking it up as preventing terrorism. Not social justice, but preventing terrorism. Actually quite clever. At one level quite clever. I'm glad you, some of you laughed because you're right. It's cynical, but also it's, there's some policy space there that's potentially interesting. And then this slide, again, I did this for you, Liz. I was trying to compare, you know, 30s thinking with today thinking. In the, in the, here's Beveridge, for those who didn't know the reference, please read it. It's absolutely, utterly brilliant account. Um, you know, today everything's handed over to companies. The responsibility deals are dominating public health and food. You know, Beveridge didn't think like that at all. None of them did. They said there's a role for a, a paternalist state. The state has got to level the playing field in modern times. Of course it is. Who else is going to do it? No. We've forgotten that. You know, in the 30s, attempts to try and look at the interests of 
ordinary people. I've just listed some of these. I think Tismus is utterly fantastic as a social researcher. Today, it's Tesco has the best data on all of us. Tesco knows what we're doing before we've even thought of it. Mr. Dunn and Mrs. Humby, their husband and wife, sold themselves to Tesco for 70 million. Tesco's database is the best in the world on consumer behaviour. Governments haven't a clue, so they just turn to Tesco. You know, there's, there's a logic to it. But I don't think that's the same thing as uh, dealing with the social dimension of food. You can look at these. Again, those I put those for you. How many people here have read McGonagall? This is outrageous. <laughs> or go and read McGonagall. Colin, if you read McGonagall. Colin, the great Colin Touch has not read McGonagall. <laughs> <laughs> no. You don't mean the Scots can read McGonagall. I do. He <laughs> was having a go at me there. Now, let's try and pick this up with my big theme of food democracy and control. We've just dealt with beverage. Beveridge said a benign state comes in and reshapes. And he said, we did it in World War I, and we left a legacy in the 20s and 30s, and he was brought back in 36. Uh, and then actually in World War II, his world was very different. But if we were to do a beverage now and say what was control on top down, I think you'd go somewhere like this. You note I've put this, I think we've got... I'm trying to tease it out in a sort of Weberian ideal types way, that we've got a sort of package of policy thinking which is what we could call food democracy, we've got a package of thinking which is we could call food control. Uh, you know, there are people Tesco still says, I keep saying Tesco, but let's think of Tesco for a moment, you know, efficiency is productivity. The business model will sort out food. Actually, that's not true. I can tell you, without declaring who they were, five of the biggest food companies in the planet that I've spoken to in the last year have all said, we can shave off carbon out of our food for about the next ten years, two of them have told me. But after that, it has to be massive culture change, and we can't do that. That's why they want a hot springs too. This is interesting. They can decarbonize. As the Walmart has a soil policy, by the way, now. You wouldn't have dreamt of that. As the Walmart has a climate change policy. Biggest retailer in the world. Biggest food retailer in the world. This is interesting. But they know that they cannot change ultimately consumer behavior. And consumer behavior change is locked into nudge speak. A little bit of arm's length, you know, labelling and nonsense when we're talking about big change if you want to reduce the CO2 impact of the western diet it's dramatic change it's not little change, it's dramatic change so different constellations emerging with a social agenda attached to each and strange things are happening is what I'm saying don't think that this is Tesco land and over there it's sort of right on people. Actually there are a lot of right on people who really want to impose change. And there are, there's a strange sort of consumerist world which is deeply worried about the narrowing of democracy to just the checkout till. 
This is a complicated politics. And my point, as you I'm sure very realised, is the political classes haven't got it. And that's our problem. The political classes have not got it. I think I've said that. I think I've said that. Okay, let's come off the big theory. I've said this, but if you needed to know and look at companies, there are remarkable things going on. And Nestle, God, not our favourite company in the world of public health. You know, but it's looking ahead and it's quietly panicking. This, this is what's behind its health and wellness vision. Barilla, the largest pa pasta company on the planet. I'll show you something in a moment. That double put. PepsiCo, probably my second least favourite company on the planet. <laughs> you know, the best thing they could do is go into liquidation and, and not sell any colours. You know, that would be their contribution to public health on the planet. So, so I now say, go and look at their 50 in 5 commitments, and it is astonishing. Reducing the carbon footprint and ecological footprint, but they're a bit vague about it, by 50% in five years. And where the experiment? It's Britain and Northern Europe, which is the experiment. And I can tell you, Atlanta is watching it like a hawk. This is happening about Walmart. Walmart, and just born again Christians, is nothing on what Lee Scott, the chief, <laughs> chief, chief uh, executive, did after Hurricane Katrina. He said the US government is useless, we are the government, we will therefore have to address climate change. Go and read his speech, it is astonishing. And that's why he turned around and came to Astor and said, I thought you were loonies, please lead. I can tell you. Unilever, their sustainable living plan, has made a commitment to completely transform all the smallholder agriculturalists who feed their supply chain. These are not small farms, but these are the companies in which some of them... Uh, I'm not meaning these are the ones that I've spoken to, but these and their ilk are looking ahead and are very worried indeed. And they too think nothing is coming from government. I have to flag this. A lot of people have said, myself included at one time, I was very intrigued by choice editing rather than choice as the driver for the 21st century. In other words, you don't include the consumer in these complicated issues of protecting ecosystems or lowering embedded water in food. You choice edit. You just say, and Marks and Spencer's is the leader in that, but actually following on from what the co-op did. It's a very interesting movement in the world of food, and it's a pace, absolutely a pace. Watch Global Gap. Forget what the FAO is doing or the British government is doing. Just follow Global Gap. GAP, standing for Good Agricultural Practice, started here in Britain, seconded from Safeway to run it really smart. Now it is setting global standards in a way no government dares to. Uh, here's a quote from We can use choice editing for some a short time, 10 years, but in the end it needs big consumer change. I'll put this very quickly. For those of you who watch the EU, my colleagues and I do obsessively, there were some really interesting things happening. And this, by long, this thing here, the Roadmap for Resource-Efficient Europe, in which food is one of the three core examples taken. This is the European Union making a commitment to do basically a factor four. Does anyone know Amy Lovins and the factor four book? Oh, my God. 
and the goal was technical fix will just reduce the footprint of every technology by a factor of four in 20 years and it's come back and actually Europe is doing it that's why you get we uh, the directive on recycling of all electrical goods reach the recycling of all chemicals this is all through that thinking the European Union is creating a really interesting framework which I think is to be watched and it's turning to food but we're not quite sure there's talk about a communicate on sustainable food but in fact literally today I heard that there are some doubt and bits of the commission are getting nervous about it we'll see those of you who are interested in uh, national developments Northern Europe, we are really the hot area of experimenting and thinking and developing policies uh, to begin to uh, address the issue of sustainability, but all around environmental sustainability, not about social sustainability, not about access, not about cost, not about affordability. And this has been the leader, Sweden the leader. This was a really interesting, really interesting. The, the closest we've got to a nation-state saying we in the rich world have got to eat a sustainable diet and they were made to withdraw it by well, there are conspiracy theories and non-conspiracy theories but they certainly withdrew it almost definitely because Polish uh, put up by Americans what said it was an infringement of the single market because the recommendation was you eat seasonally and you eat locally in season and then the carbon comes down and the water comes down. And that's against the single market. Well, this is, I've got a PhD student trying to unravel this. Very interesting. Okay, now. I've been painting a very sober world, but also a very exciting world, where lots of interesting things are happening. You can't say we're walking in to uh, over the cliff without knowing that we're walking over the cliff. We know very well we're walking over a cliff. We've got over-consuming world and under-consuming world. I think we need a hot springs too. We teach our students in food policy and exercise. In fact, I've been marking them the last three weeks, uh, the last three or four days. Uh, you've got three minutes with the Prime Minister. Not, oh, I need more research, Your Honour. Can I have a, you know, a begging gold time? You know, give us the money for a, a laboratory and I'll come up with an answer in 20 years. No. Uh, okay, so I apply it to myself. And because I speak a lot, I've got not three ideas in three minutes, it's four. Uh, oh no, I don't I got it to three. Uh, I think the key thing is this. I think we've got to rethink lots of things like public health guidelines. We have public health nutritional guidelines that are common wherever you are. Why? Because if you start looking at the environmental footprint, foods are different in different places at different times in different ways. I thought I'd put a slide in weight. I think we've got some very interesting emergencies. The Royal Society of People and Planet, if you haven't read it, report, it's utterly stunning. It came out last year and basically said, look, we cannot see our way through this unless we operate a policy based around can contract and converge. In other words, we rich consume less in order to allow space 
and facilities and resources for the poor to consume more, and all bring down the aspiration from the United States way of eating or the British way of eating. I think we, what's missing from that is the economic analysis. One of the things that has stunned me in 40 years of following through the productionist paradigm is how agriculture sinks. Agriculture doesn't get the money. I was taught in economics, follow the money. Who's getting it? I'm actually having an argument with the DEFRA at the moment. These are DEFRA's figures, by the way. And because I'm running around giving speeches like this at the moment, DEFRA is saying, well, you can't say that, we don't say that. Of course agriculture gets more. And I say, well, why put it in your statistics then? So they're saying, well, it's 30%. Okay, who'd say it's 30%, but it's not 50%. But agriculture basically doesn't get much money. Lots of other people get it. I think we've got to stop, Colin, you won't like this, I think we've got to stop talking about agriculture and just entirely focus on horticulture. That has to be the central emphasis, because that's what's dying. Plants don't make farmers much. And yet it's plants that we need. Very interesting study by the Union of Concerned Scientists in the US said, if, if the US ate a diet that fitted the plate, they used to have a pyramid, they've gone to a plate, nutritional plate. What would it mean for US agriculture? Well, it meant doubling of fruit and veg and nearly 200,000 new jobs. That's quite interesting, actually. I think it's very interesting, as an ex-farmer, how many farmers in the waged employment and, and workers? Anyone know the price the, the wage a skilled worker in horticulture gets? You wouldn't believe it. I do know it. £7.50. The uh, minimum wage? £7.40. Basic grade starting? £7. How can you expect anyone to go into horticulture? You know, this is crazy. We have to sort this. Whoa. Okay, and I said, I'm... Great fan of Brutland, I've met her several times, I think she's fantastic. But I think her three-part, three-pillar model is wrong. And this was our attempt at the SDC to say, okay, what does it mean in food? And so you've got your three minutes with the Prime Minister, you say, actually, Prime Minister, a good food system has got to be about quality, it's got to be about social values, it's got to be about the environment, it's got to be about health, it's got to be about the economy, and it's got to be about governance and trust in the middle of Horsburger and halal meat crises, I'm sure I don't need to tell you. And under these, each of those big headings, we group the things that we think actually trouble and are addressed by science and the disciplines. <coughs> Have a look at it. Just to let you know, the FAO is stirring Biodiversity International, CGIR, one of the 16 research units around the world, came up with this definition. We've got to have a new approach to drive food policy around sustainable diets. And here's the definition. You can look at it later. It's very aspirational. Uh, I did put it in. Good. This is Barilla. Here is the biggest pasta company in the world giving a Tesco-like donation to Bocconi University in Milan to create this centre, which they've done and it's flourishing, which came up and said, look, let's translate the pyramid in environmental terms. And they came up with this double pyramid. It's interesting. 
but it's actually focused at consumers. It needs to be translated into policy. What would a food system look like if it was delivering this? The answer is it wouldn't be what we've got at the moment in the West. So I think the new agenda is asking what's farming for and to answer it. If I had, in fact I was in the studio with him and I didn't say it to him because I was polite, but if I had two minutes with our Secretary of State for Environment, Food and Rural Affairs, uh, Mr. Owen Patterson, I'm sure he's nice to his wife and children, but he's a climate change denier, uh, I would say you've got to refocus DEFRA around sustainable diets. That's actually what Hilary Benn was beginning to do, read Food 2030, and ecosystem services, and I think employment. The jobs have gone in food, in primary production. The jobs are all off the land. You can read all of that. The mainstream position is this. McKinsey World is this. I think I'm arguing increasingly that that's what we've got to be doing. It's seen as radical at the moment, but it's right. This is wrong. I'm going to be categorical. I'm boring and 65. I'm allowed to be categorical. I think everything has got to be about this. I think we've got a lot going for us, actually. This, sorry, this, uh, this, uh, sorry, wrong bit. This <coughs> cluster here, the radical position as opposed to the dominant position, because actually, in a number of hotspots, that debate is breaking out. This one interests me. I don't think we're doing enough on that. This is huge. Runaway health and health costs. Food waste is huge. This debate is very interesting. Fabulous paper by Charles Godfrey here at Oxford and Tara Garnett now also at Oxford. Uh, just unpicking sustainable intensification. It means all things to all people. It doesn't help actually. But it's... Uh, uh, Kick to the bank, a bit like a food mile section. Okay, we conclude. What might achieve the radical, reasonable future? Is it going to be rational action? You know, Mr. Cameron suddenly wakes up and says, ah, we have to do this. I don't think so, but let's hope. Uh, the military, I talk a lot to the military, I don't know if any of you do. They are some of the only people in governments who think 30 years ahead. Their line is mostly, uh, it's us who come and clean up the trouble. Uh, or is it going to be for democracy? I think we've actually got a lot going for us in food democracy. I sat last week at this meeting in The Hague and wrote this slide trying to think, what is the good news on food democracy? There's a huge urban agriculture movement. There's a very, very interesting... I'm thinking Britain, by the way. There's a very interesting city food movement. Now, 30 cities united. There's a whole movement around low-carbon diets. If you don't know the five diets, it's interesting. The, the animal welfare movement is remarkable. It's probably more effect than the public health world, actually, <coughs> on changing things. 
I think on biodiversity horticulture, it's low, but I think it's getting into bed with the next one down. The children's food movement is remarkable. The sustainable diet debate is just extraordinary at the moment. Uh, the developing world debate about smallholder and cooperatives, I think, is fantastic. And Britain has a huge role in that because our huge aid budget can either help that or not help it. And actually, to their credit, the coalition has been very good on that. The anti-supermarket movement is remarkable, actually. It's a real sign of sort of health. The corporate PR scepticism, all of this, I think. If you do, CI is Consumers International. Consumers International, 20 years ago, was opposed to everything that we've been talking about tonight. And now it's completely on board and thinks that whether it's the consumers of Malawi or consumers of Berlin, this is the agenda we've got to address. But I have to, in all honesty, end with this. I think we're more likely to get enforced change. I think we're more likely to get enforced change. And here's where most of us think these sort of things can kick in. Sean Ingram and I a paper coming out in the British Academy's Tipping Points book report shortly. This is talking about, you know, there are lots of ways, whatever your analogy, whether it's tipping points or boiling over or boil dry, you know, there's a lot going for this, unfortunately. A lot going for it. But it's not what I want. I think we want a hot springs too. I think we need a new shared bigger vision than just, you know, organic agriculture. I'm an ex-organic farmer, by the way. It's not the answer. It doesn't deal with the social dimension. We've got to unblock the politics. We do need some research. Okay, here's my three minutes for the Prime Minister. This is my last slide. I think we've got to rebuild UK food security focus on horticulture. How can we get plant diversity into fields and into stomachs? Less animals. 50% of all grain in Britain is fed to animals. 45% of all grain grown on the planet is fed to animals. And it's growing. It's the single biggest drain on water, land, resources, fertilisers. Steinfeld's much heralded livestock's long shadow of 2006. A revised version is coming out next month, by the way. I think we want, this is what I get out of bed to play my part in, I think we want to throw away all public health nutrition guidelines and build sustainable dietary guidelines. It is folly that the Food Standards Agency, in fact, I meant to look today so I apologise if they've suddenly taken it off. The Food Standards Agency has on its website eat two portions of fish of which one should be oily. This is complete ecological stupidity. But they're right epidemiologically. How do we square that? We have to address the issue of sustainable diet. Do I eat fish? Yes or no? One of the fish I eat is mackerel. Marine Stewardship Council last week said, stop. <coughs> what do we do? 
That's it. <laughs>